Welcome to the King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. But you can get us in the evening as well as uh, later on. You can do it on Thursdays on Facebook <laughs> because Facebook will archive them uh, as we go along. So... Uh, just keep that in mind as well. Uh, is it Easter yet? Because it feels like Easter these last couple of days with the rain and the warmth and the, you know, we could just do it all together. That'd be much more convenient for my schedule, right? Uh, yeah, I say that now, right? And then uh, the attendance sheet's coming around, so let's um, let's pass that around. Yeah, Steve. Oh, yeah. You can take that off. You, well, when I'm done answering your question, we could take it off. There you go. What are you talking about, Steve? There's no picture up there. That was where my uh, large flat screen TV was. It wasn't mine, but uh, yeah, I think it's a wall that had something large on there, you know. So, yes, sir, Johnny. Yeah, there you go. A dot 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 fresh start. Come on, Steve. Pay attention. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Johnny, for saving me there. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you this morning grateful for uh, all the reasons you give us to be optimistic. We thank you for your word, and we pray that today that word would penetrate our hearts and minds. We thank you. Uh, for the gift of holy baptism, may, may we be renewed in our baptisms today. And we thank you for the sacrament of holy communion, where you come to us, real and present, uh, to give us your grace. Bless us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, here's how these things work. Uh, we get into a room and we say, hey, we've got this great idea called Fresh Start. And... Um, Let's come up with some themes for Fresh Start. And so we brainstorm ideas. And then we say, oh, our Wednesday Bible study should also include Fresh Start. All right. Well, what are, what are the themes that we came up with? Well, let's be a little more optimistic. Hmm. What should we use for a little more optimistic? And then we come up with an idea. And then I study that idea and realize this doesn't really work. The one person we chose, it's hard to fit, but we're committed to the cause, my friend. So hang in there. You're going to have, uh, Mike, can you help me a second? Uh, you're going to have to hang in there with me. And uh, the reason I'm doing this, is I feel very far from all of you. So I'm going to move this table so I can come closer to you. Um, I feel like it's a, a hindrance for me seeing you. So it's going to take almost to the very end of this study for us to see how this fits with a little more optimistic. And I'm happy to tell you that I'm not making it fit. It just takes that long. All right. So turn to John eight, John eight verses one to 11, John eight verses one to 11. I was going to bring the paddles. You know, Tara taught me how to use the paddles to put uh, passages on them and everything, but uh, time got away from me today. So no paddles for you. Uh, maybe next week. 
So, Johnny, this is the great story of the adulterous woman who um, is caught in adultery and is going to be stoned to death. Before we even read it, there's a couple things you need to know. And just so you know, this is not the nature of our Bible study today, but it's important that you know it. Uh, It is widely believed that this account, John 8, 1 to 11, uh, is not part of the original text of the gospel. Meaning, it's a story added later. So much so that uh, some commentaries don't even include it. I actually have a commentary in my office that when you're reading through the gospel of John... It ends with John 7 and then starts John 8, verse 12. So they, they account for the 1 to 11, but they don't speak to it. It has a note about it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's believed that this is probably the earliest that this could have probably been added. It's believed that we start seeing it is the 6th century. So that's a long time. So how does this all work, right? Uh, If you are a biblical scholar, um, you you already know this. Um, When they're looking at a text of Scripture, um, the evidence they're looking for is how many manuscripts there are and how old are those manuscripts. So um, when you look in a Greek New Testament, and, and this is ancient Greek, this is not Greece Greek, Uh, Today, when you read a Greek New Testament, on the bottom, there's markings of where these passages were located in different manuscripts, sort of code, if you will. And that gives you an indication of the, hmm, I'll use the word, although I don't know if it's the best word, the authenticity of it being in there at that moment. There's a couple other passages in Scripture that we would say the same thing about. However... To say that it does not belong is not the same as rejecting it as unhistorical. See the difference? So um, we're not saying that it didn't occur. Uh, we're not saying that it couldn't have occurred. It, what we're saying is we don't see it in the early manuscripts, and so either it's a later edition that they found somewhere else or... It's, a, it's an account that, that the scribes, when they were writing it, felt it should be included. If you really read John eight, uh, John 7, right, what you'll find is that this story of this woman is a sub-story of the wider story in John 7. An analogy, if you will. Um, that said, um, it does fit with the spirit Uh, and the nature of who Jesus was, what he came to do, and other things that we see Jesus do. So in in biblical uh, scholastic thought, not only are you looking at the manuscripts, but you're also looking, does this fit into the narrative of what we already know? By the way, uh, historians would say the same thing. Um, for, For Lutheran Christians... A great example of that would be the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha is uh, extra books of the Bible that our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers say 
our biblical perspectives of Scripture, we would say, no, they're not, uh, they're, they're not biblical, they're extra-biblical. Uh, we would look at them, I often say this, we would look at them as like a good Christian book, uh, a good Max Locato book, right? There's lots of good things in there. There's lots of good, rich things about spirituality in there. But were they actual events that were said by those people? Mm, the timelines don't go with what we would say would be the case, right? So it's extra biblical. It's useful. Uh, it's beneficial, but it's not necessarily part of the original text that we know as Scripture. What we don't know is why the scribes place it in there, but what we should assume is they place it in there for a reason. Now, this is fodder for uh, skeptics and unbelievers, right? Um and if we're being truthful with ourselves, rightly so. <laughs> if we're going to proclaim that this is God's word, eh, except verses 1 to 11 in John 8, you know, uh, we, we, we do have a problem with the debate, if you will. Um, uh, that said, this is one of the many examples where I would say this, to me, shows the authenticity of Christianity. We're not trying to hide our blemishes. We're not trying to explain away what's difficult to explain away, right? It, it'd be much easier to, to not tell you any of that, <laughs> right? Um, the end of Mark, another area where we say, mm, we don't see this in every early manuscript at the end of Mark. So um, we, have to, we have to wrestle with that as Christians. If we want to have a debate with someone in the weeds, uh, this is one of those debates where they might gain a little traction. If we want to have a debate about the truth of who Christ is, this is a winner. This is a winner, no doubt, right? So I just felt you needed to know that in case you didn't, or in case you were wondering if Alex was wondering if her eyesight was getting bad because one section was smaller than the other. <laughs> now you know why. Right. I think you'll see at the end of this, though, as we read this account, that um, there is a revelation about Jesus that is very consistent of who Jesus is. Right. So the uh, the cherry on top of ruining this for us would be if we read this account and at the end of the account, we're like, wow, we've never seen Jesus do that. We've never heard him say that. Uh, then we'd have a big problem. But there's a consistency here. And in, in biblical narratives, we're always looking for that too. Right? This is why, da 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 Scripture interprets Scripture is a hallmark of Lutheran Christian theology. Scripture interprets Scripture. The best evidence for Scripture is scripture. And this is an example of that. We all right, this was this in at the proper time, maybe maybe not, but we can see this same story, not this account, but the same concept of story all throughout the gospel, all throughout the epistles, and frankly in the Old Testament too. So, that helps us do that. So, I need someone to read John 8 
verses. We're going to do 1 to 11, but we're actually, we'll, we'll study 3 to 11. But let's read 1 to 11. John 8, 1 to 11. Larry is ready to give you the microphone. Who's going to do it? Jim Dober. Hold on, wait for the microphone. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now sin no more. So as you're thinking about what spoke to you, a couple things to consider. We're looking for optimism. We're looking for the fresh start and the reason to be a little more optimistic. Uh, which is pretty pretty clear at the end here. Um, one, uh, two, the nature of the time. Um, Jesus' ministry has been out there for a little bit, and the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus. Right there's there's not much peace and harmony here. In fact, prior to this in seven, there's a, an attempt to arrest Jesus. Uh, there's questioning whether he is the Christ. That's why if you actually read the end of 7 and then go to 8 verse 12, it makes a, it kind of makes a little more sense because they're, they're questioning who Jesus is. And then you go to 8 verse 12 and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You want to know who I am? Take that. <laughs> right? But in the middle of that, we have this really powerful account. Uh, so what spoke to you? What was interesting to you? What jumped out to you? Just raise your hand and Larry will come to you. Uh, D, go ahead. I think there's the obvious that um, the woman has a fresh start. But but I think for all the people in the crowd, they probably were thinking, whoa, I, you know, it might, a chance for them to all do a little self-examination. Yeah, I, good point. I, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to get a little deeper into what would have led them to have left. Um, in addition to Christ's words, um, Tara had shared with me, it's a, it's just a tad too long for us to do in Bible study, but it's really interesting. It's a, it's a fictional account of a boy who is at this event and what he sees and how he sees it. And, and he has a stone in his hand and the, and the, uh, the, the, the struggle he goes through with, dropping that stone and watching the elders throw that stone down, you know. So, yeah, it, that's good that perhaps not only does this woman get a fresh start, but all of them leave at least with a potential new outlook, right? Jim. Well, that, that was my point. I th- find it interesting that every one of them left 
So when Jesus says, <laughs> any of you that are sinless, go ahead and throw the stone. And they all looked at their heart and left. Yeah. yeah. But Jesus remained. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you've all heard the joke, right, that um, this account happens and Jesus uh, Jesus is there and he says he was sinless, cast the first stone, and boom, this stone comes out of nowhere. And he turns around and says, Mom, I wasn't talking to you. Something like that, right? Yeah. Right. By the way, Mary was not sinless for the record. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. I always wondered what he was writing. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, we're going to certainly talk about that for sure. Yeah. Judy, we'll come to you, but let's go to Ken because of uh, proximity. <laughs> uh, verse 6, it says, they were using this question as crap. It sounds like one of those, if you say yes, we got him. <laughs> no, we got him. What is crap? I don't understand it. Yeah, well, I'm going to come to that. But you're right. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. Yeah. But, but we'll come to that. Yeah. Uh, way over to Judy. And then back to Karen. I've always found it interesting that the older people left first. Yeah. Because young folks don't always think they sin. Older <laughs> folks have experienced the weight of their sin. Yeah, and think about, I mean, there would be there would be some culturalness to this, a cultural nature to this, that the elders would have that appropriate first throw, if you will. Uh, but their example is important. Uh, right here, please. No? I thought you raised your hand. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your assistance. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, let's, let's dig into some of these things because it's really actually – I think um, very fascinating. Uh, so go to chapter 8. Let's start with verse 3, okay? The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing in her in the midst, they said, I'm sorry, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Let's stop there for a minute. A couple things. Uh, this pattern isn't new. Uh, they've already tried to arrest Jesus in chapter 7. And, frankly, they already have ample evidence against Jesus. They've heard enough, frankly, to, to really take him in if they wanted to. Do they have enough to crucify him? Maybe not. Their continual problem uh, throughout this time, up until the fact that they do arrest them, is they have a people problem. That that there's never an opportune time where there aren't people who would resist this event. And you see that a little bit in 7. Um, so until then, what do you do? You just keep building your case, right? Um, because if he has the people, I mean, let's take their side for a moment. Um, if we don't have the people behind us. Let's get the people behind us. Let's show the people where he is in error. Let's show them where he's violating the law. Let's show them where he is not. He couldn't possibly be who he says he is, because if he were, 
he would be doing what we know God to be doing. Right? Makes sense. So they're building a case for that as well. And they say, here, here we have an example for you, Jesus. This woman here, she has broken the law. Now, to do that, to have this whole case before Jesus, they need two witnesses who have caught the woman in adultery. So just so you know what I'm doing, I'm making a case that they don't have a case. So one thing you should consider when you read this story is that they're lying. Just consider it. I'm not suggesting they are, but that there's some mistruths here. That's revealing, isn't it? It could be called fake news. That's right. Um, Someone turn to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17.6. Deuteronomy, this is where the panel, panels would have been, panels would have been helpful. I apologize. Deuteronomy 17.6. Someone have that for me? Actually, I have it. You don't want to. Who's got it? Mike? Great. Deuteronomy 17.6. Just to let you know what they would need to be doing. Go ahead, Mike. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And the witness shall be, against, shall be first against him to put him to death. Okay. Pause there. Go to 19.5 while you're there, while I comment on this. So did you hear that? Did you hear what the rules are? You have to have at least more than one witness. And did you hear the rule? If the person's found guilty, that witness gets to put their hand on the accused first. That's an important distinction for later on. So if indeed the witness is there and the witness turns out to be telling the truth, the woman's convicted of adultery, that witness gets to cast the first stone. 19.5. Please. As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live. Yeah, so there is, so the other end of that is there are <laughs> sanctuary cities. I, I, know it's a, I know it's a very troubling term for some people, but uh, there it is, all right? <laughs> it's the only word I can think of, all right? So what happens? They... Now they, they give Jesus their question, and Ken, you're right. The question is intended to ch- test Jesus, and what they're testing Ken is to see if he will fulfill the law of Moses. They want to see if he's going to fulfill the law of Moses. Well, they already, they already know that he's willing, in their minds, to break the law of Moses. They already know that. So if you went to... Uh, do I have it? Yeah. Uh, John 5, 16, I'm going to read it to you. John 5, 16 to 18, it says this. Therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, therefore making himself equal to God. So, by the way, two laws being broken, right? Uh, 
if you really want to be technical, working on the Sabbath and no other gods but God. You're not equal to God. Good old Jesus. I mean, we believe he is, of course, but that's what they're saying. So this, would just, this event would just give them another piece of evidence. And in doing so, perhaps build their case. Karn. While Karn's getting the microphone, has the attendance been around everybody's table? Okay, thank you. Yes. So we're saying they're bringing this woman to Jesus on the Sabbath? No. What, what I'm saying is that they're testing. Uh, the law would require that if indeed this woman had committed adultery, she should be stoned to death. So they're they're testing to see whether they would he would agree with them that the woman should be stoned to death. What I'm saying is they've already have evidence that Jesus lives contrary to how they interpret the law. Because in chapter 5, he was doing work on the Sabbath, which would be against the law. All right, but this is not on the Sabbath. That's correct. I don't think it is. No, it would probably say. I'm just curious. It says if the women caught adultery or stoned, did they stone the men too? I'm going I'm to answer that. Yeah, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Um, but let me just, before we get too far off of that, of this, this event here, there's only one answer that Jesus can give that would appease these scribes and Pharisees, and that's what? She's got to be stoned, right? Gil. In my note here, it says the Romans did not allow the Jews to carry out death sentences. So if Jesus had said to stone her, he could have been in conflict with the Romans. Damned if you do, yeah. damned if you don't. Exactly right. Although there is some, uh, yes, that is the law for sure. Um, people who like to get in the weeds um, love to to then bring up the crucifixion, which of course we know the Romans did, right? Not it's it's a mis it's a it's a false argument. But if you get to someone who's really a doubter. They'll say, but you see, they they had him killed. Yeah, someone else did it, <laughs> right? But yeah, if Jesus says, yeah, she should die. Oh, you broke the law, you broke the other law, right? If the woman was caught in adultery, Jim, the man would have been guilty as well and would have been stoned. So turn to someone turn to Leviticus twenty ten, and someone else to Deuteronomy twenty two. God bless you. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Deuteronomy 22, and I'll give you the verses when we're there. Who has Leviticus? Up here, please. Xanders. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Thank you. I feel like an attorney today. De Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24. Deuteron Ken, over here. Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24. Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man 
who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Thank you. So, um, we, uh, how do I say this? Uh, don't, knowing your scripture is important because there are, there are folks who would be very upset to say, see, why is there only the woman being punished? Uh, what is the answer in this case? Why are we only hearing about the woman in this case? Uh, I don't have any idea. And that should be your answer. <laughs> uh, because we're only, hearing, we're only hearing one portion of the story, right? It doesn't mean that there isn't another portion of the story. Uh, for all we know, the man's already dead. Maybe he's already stoned to death. I don't think he is. There's no evidence of that. Maybe they couldn't find him. Maybe he's running. Maybe the Pharisees and the scribes, because this is a trumped-up charge, don't have the man. Who knows? There, there could be lots of reasons. Um, scripture does not give us every account, every detail of every account. Uh, I put here, he was either there and just, just not talked about. Maybe he is there. It's not relevant to the wider story, the point of the story that the writer's trying to make. Or they've already cast judgment on him, right? So, by the way, we see this all the time in Scripture, um, where we don't we don't know all of Jesus' childhood because it's not relevant to the salvation story. We only know portions of what happened to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament, and the portions we know are relevant to the salvation story. We have to we have to always remember what the purpose of the scripture is. And the scripture is a light for our way. It's to lead us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Um, basic Christianity 101. Uh, the Old Testament, Old Testament points to the need for Christ. The gospels reveal Christ. And the New Testament reveals the life with Christ. So that's its purpose. When I teach the new member class, I always say these same things. The when I teach the whole class, uh, the Bible is not a history book, although it contains history. The Bible is not a math book, although it does have the book of numbers. Uh, the Bible is not a law book, although it has a lot of laws. The Bible is a book that proclaims the Messiah. And it reveals to us what God has decided to be revealed to us. Right. So if you get into a hot debate with someone about, well, where is the man? And this is the problem with Christianity. It, you know, women don't have equal rights and those kind of things. Listen, in this story on, on, on John 8, uh, let's all just take a deep breath. We know the, the, that the law would be very clear that it would be equal judgment for both. Okay, This is not the point. You could make one last argument you could make is that oftentimes in Scripture, Jesus tries to give us, I'm going to say, a more extreme example, right? So, uh, for example, when Jesus says, uh, let the little children come to me, and you should be like this little child. Um, maybe I've shared this with you before. There's a professor at the seminary who says, I like to think that that child is a little girl with special needs in the first century. Because a little girl with special needs in the first century would be the most unwanted child ever. 
in that culture. So the imagery would be Jesus saying, you want to know me? Know her. You want to know love? Love her. And by the way, this is a Greek scholar of the seminary. There's not just some uh, feel-good pastoral theology guy. <laughs> uh, Pastor Freilich over there. So here it could be too, right? What would be the extreme nature of the law in the first century? A woman caught in adultery. <laughs> right? Yeah. In essence, this passage has nothing to do with the woman. Keep going. It's all about Jesus. Yeah. It's all about what he is about. Right. And, and isn't that what all these accounts are supposed to be? Yeah, it's, right? it's a book of theology. Yeah. It's a book about God. Yeah. Yeah. But we are interfacing with God. Yes. Yeah. When Jesus heals the blind man, it's about Jesus. Right. But what do we do? And one level, it's good to do, right? Uh, if we, we personify it to ourselves, which can be dangerous because then we make faith about what God does for us and not necessarily who God is. See, see the difference, right? Yeah. Sorry, Larry. If you look at the whole chapter, <laughs> I don't know if you're going to go eight. there. No, chapter please eight. do. Please do. If you're going to go there, at the end, there's a, they want to stone Jesus. The end of chapter. So it's a, the full. Yes. The chapter starts with the stoning of a woman, but and at the end, Jesus, yeah. right? Where, wherein both accounts are about Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so verse six. We're getting optimism. So far, it's a lot of stoning and death. But this, this they said to test him that they might have that they might have a charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. All right. So the purpose here is to alert the reader that the scribes and the Pharisees asked the question not to learn from wisdom, not to respect a rabbi or a prophet or a teacher or the Messiah, but rather they want to get him. They want to accuse him. They want to eliminate him. Okay. So how does Jesus respond? to love Jesus, don't you? <laughs> um, he stoops down and writes with his finger on the ground. Now, I happen to believe that he writes the first verse of A Mighty Fortress. It's his favorite hymn, Ken, right? Um, but I've been told I'm wrong on that. So let's see what he wrote. Somebody turn to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah Give you lots of biblical practice today. You know my theory. Don't worry if you have a hard time finding it. The best way to learn how to find it is to look for it. You can't find it, look in the table of contents. That's what God put it there for. Yeah. There were three tablets to Moses. The first tablet was the table of contents. Jeremiah 17. Someone's going to watch this online and... Have a lot of uh, reason to put some complaints in. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Who has it? Mike has it. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to, to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, 
fountain of living water. So, could it be uh, that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah? Right? That he's writing this down to say, here are people who are turning away from you. Right? They don't get you, God. They don't get it. Right? Could be. Um, he could also have written what he was about to say. Right? Uh, and why would that be? Because even in the first century, uh, something written had greater authority than something that was spoken. Right? If you have if you have something from the king, if you have something from the governor, if you have that something from the soldier, that meant something. Then, oh, uh, the governor said I could come through. Where's where's the evidence of that? Right? Could be that as well. Here's. Here's the answer you all do not like to hear. We just don't know. Ultimately, we don't know. I love the imagery of the Jeremiah event because there's a, there's a beautiful connection there. The only challenge with that is that he stoops down again in a little bit. Um, so did he, like, did he spell something wrong? Or, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know. But maybe he's putting his email address. Sometimes the jokes work, Sharon, and sometimes they don't. Jim. I like to think of it as Jesus just taking a pause and saying, Father, give these people. They're so stupid. They think they're <laughs> going to trick me. And, <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it could be. Uh, Elizabeth, please. <clears throat> Question. Could everyone in that crowd read? Probably not. Well, Pharisees and scribes probably could. Maybe not everyone else. Um, you know, the other thing to think of <clears throat> here is, does one have their hand over there? Yeah. See? Now, I was looking at the footnote for Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Yeah. Hope of Israel, dust, earth, sometime referring to the netherworld. Also, in Canaanite and Mesopotamia liter literature, Written in the dust would then mean destined for death, the opposite of written in the book of life. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, some translations have of this text not written on the earth, but written in the underworld or hell. Yeah. So think about that. It, I mean, it's the same. In, in essence, it's the same thing because those who do not have Christ do not have life, right? And this would be the sort of the, the lament of Jesus as he's writing that. Um, I think that we could we could move away from what he's written, and and move to the fact that it's remembered that he's written something. And so when you're looking for historical perspective, when you're looking for details of truth in Scripture, this would be an unforgettable moment, right? It's one thing that the woman wasn't stoned, right? You wouldn't forget that. But that the detail of Jesus stooping down, the detail of him writing something, gives some, some, I think gives it some authenticity than just a passing story, right? Similar to when Jesus is arrested. Uh, Jesus is arrested and um, Mark gives the account because he was there. He was one of the characters in it, right? Um, that's what I'm talking about here. But let's keep going. Uh, verse 7, 
Beep, bop, bop, bop. And as they continue to ask him, so remember, they ask the question, he stoops down, writes something, then the, whatever they wrote doesn't appease him because they, verse 7, they continue to ask him, he stoop, stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. All right, hang in there. I think you're going to hear this. This is important about the law. If the woman is guilty, as I said before, the witnesses have a right to throw the first stone. If the witnesses are not there and the assembly begins to throw the stones, they then are taking the place of the witnesses and the law required that the witnesses, that the law required then that they, the new people taking the place of the witnesses, not have any malicious thought or have any doubt of lying. This is Deuteronomy 19, 16, 18, which we're not going to read. So whoever takes on himself the role of the witness and therefore the executioner must be confident before God that he's doing the right thing. By the way, not an unreasonable demand. Right? The person's life is at stake. So good for the law. But, but it's important that you know the the context of what's happening here. So if there's no witnesses, to harmonize this a little bit, if there's no witnesses, she can still be stoned, but those throwing the stones under the law must not have any malicious thought, and they must not be lying. So they must know for sure that the guilt of this woman is at hand. It's a lot of responsibility. So if you think of it that way, the, the response of Jesus is brilliant. He doesn't get caught in the trap. He says, my answer to you is, whoever is sinless cast the first stone. Now, we typically interpret that, and I think rightly so, to say, anyone who's never done anything wrong, go ahead and throw the first stone, right? I think that's appropriate. I think that does give us an indication of who Jesus is. But what we also learn here is it's a little deeper than that. Any of you who are not malicious, throw the first stone. Any of you who do not, who, who aren't lying, any of you who know for perfect truth that this woman's guilty, go ahead. It's your right to do it. So there's some depth to his answer because there's some depth to what the law says. So what happens in verse 8? At once, and once more, I'm sorry, he bent down and wrote on the ground. All right, Jesus, now you're making this difficult, right? Uh, actually, Jim, many people believe that this second time is a moment of pause. Um, because he's given an answer. Now they have to respond. And what's their, what are their choices of response? Stoner or not stoner? By the way, do you also notice something else different happening in this narrative? Uh, throughout this whole time, there's a lot of conversation. Hey, Jesus, this woman has, been committed, has committed adultery. The law says, what do you think we should do? 
What do you think the law says, Jesus? He, while he's answering them, while he's engaging them, they're constantly questioning him, the scripture says. The, whoever sinless casts the first stone, chirp, chirp, chirp. There's no more questions. So there is a pause here, perhaps, for some reflection. He stoops down. They stay silent. There's no more questions. Uh, somebody, I'll read it for you. Matthew twenty-two twenty-six. This has happened before. Matthew twenty-two twenty uh, twenty-two forty-six. I'm sorry. No one was able to give him an answer. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus does have this way, saying, uh, "Not only will I answer your question, but I think I'll shut you up." Elizabeth, please. Jesus have written in the sand of a chapter and verse that he's talking about. Could. Because uh, the Pharisees and the scribes would know what that was. Well, they would have known the Jeremiah passage for sure. You know, um, I, I think it's very possible. You know, um, this is these are one of uh, Pastor Jeff Browning, who I had the privilege of working for in New York, uh, working with in New York too. Uh, he, uh, oh, by the way, I spoke to Pastor Meyer uh, just the other day, uh, yesterday. Uh, I apologize. Um, the, uh, he used to say, let's not say what the Bible doesn't say. Uh, he, he's a very good teacher, <laughs> Pastor Browning, and it would infuriate people because we wanted to say something. And he'd say, let's not say what the Bible doesn't say. Uh, that said, let's play with it a little bit more, right? Um, it could be that um, Jesus could be writing a thousand things, right? Um, it could also be that he's just pausing for reflection. Um, whatever the case, uh, I think here, which from a leadership point of view, and again, I'm leading into this a little bit, reading into this a little bit, um, he is commanding the situation. His actions command the situation. Right. So it shows just the uh, amount of authority and uh, gravitas, if you will, that Jesus has that while they're asking him, he can stoop down just by stooping down and going like this. It changes the nature of the culture that's around them in that moment. That's by the way, for those of you in leadership. That's not easy to do. That's not easy to teach. <laughs> right. So here again, we see Jesus commanding the situation. There's a pause, and lo and behold, there's no stone. No one throws a stone. And then to Judy's point earlier, go to verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I find it interesting that it doesn't say the witnesses departed. Now, again, Maybe they were there, maybe they weren't there. But what we do see is that those of greater uh, wisdom, those of greater authority in that culture are the first to say, you know what, we don't have a case. We've lost this battle today. It's time for us to go. Instead of, uh, they, they all depart, and so instead of condemning the woman, uh, Jesus' words have an effect condemned the religious leaders and establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, uh, and the like. So the very thing that they were trying to do to Jesus, Jesus ultimately does to them. 
Because, again, we don't know for sure, but you could make a case that by their departure, they, they too, not only they too, because Jesus wasn't, that they were in violation of the law, of the very law that they're trying to convict Jesus of, right? Um, again, we're, we're, on a, we're on that red line of being, eh, maybe it says it, maybe it doesn't. Um, let's go to our question. Where's the fresh start? Uh, I think Dee's right. You have to think that some of those elders walked away thinking, huh, maybe there's something to this guy, right? Or at least I got to look at me a little bit more. Uh, now, now let's go to the woman. A couple things, just to, I'm going to burst your bubble from the beginning. We don't hear that the woman believes that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not the same as the woman at the well. We don't hear that she leaves from here and says, like the, like the blind man or, or like the one leper, that, they, that she is so changed by Jesus that, that you know, we just don't hear that. We might have. Um, that, that might have happened. It'd be neat to know what her life was like after this, right? If she truly, if she committed adultery, if she changed from her ways, if she learned more about Jesus, none of that we know. And I actually think that that's a value. Because a lot of times in modern Christian theology, um, non-Lutheran Christian theology, it's uh, the, the God blesses you as a result of your faith, of who you are and what you do and what you believe. We don't see that here. Now, are we blessed because we are people of faith? Sure. There's bl- of course, blessings are a part of that, right? It's better as one day in the courts of the Lord's house than a thousand elsewhere. Scripture is clear about that. But what we wouldn't say is that only those blessings come when you show belief. That's contrary to the theology of grace, which is a hallmark of Lutheran theology. And by the way, respect it within Christian, Christendom. So, to me, one of the values of optimism here is uh, the the mercy of God is presented to this woman, even though there's no declaration of who he is, there's no pronouncement of faith, and there's no evidence that she's changed by it. Now, she could have been, but there's nothing here. So, what happens? Jesus, it's just Jesus and the woman, verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, I love this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Karin. Curious, at the end, the woman with him and then she does say lord yeah she does the word the term does anyone have a different translation than that would some say sir yeah so it depends on what it uh, there's certainly a res- there's no doubt she respects him carol over there go ahead carol monroe yeah she respects him right she's he saved her life <laughs> i mean with everyone else leaving he could have just walked away too and said, "Well, I managed to uh, luck out." Yeah, 
Right. But he had enough respect to stay there and answer his questions. And, you know, this version does say, Lord, also. Yeah. And, and listen, let's, let's do the whole spectrum here. It could be, I'm sorry, please. Yes, Linda. Uh, in my footnote, it says, uh, Jesus pronounced no specific word of forgiveness. <laughs> right. So this is your. It says she was evidently guilty, but in trap. You're, you're, uh, good. Yes, where you're getting to where I'm going. Good. Keep going. Uh, he called her to repent and to change her sinful life. Yeah. Sue? He said change her sinful life. He doesn't think. So let's go, let's do the whole spectrum. Uh, the fact that she's not, the fact that Jesus, what Sue said is the fact that Jesus is um, telling her to change from her sinful life does not give her a free pass. My words of yours, words Sue, to to just to do what well. doesn't give her any forgiveness of what perhaps she had done before. So yes, to be fair, the first side of the spectrum is Jesus is. Jesus isn't condemning her because there's nothing to condemn. There's no, there's no witnesses against her, right? Meaning he's following the rules, I guess is what I'm saying. And this goes to what Linda had read to us too, which is there, there's nothing for him to do here because there's no one around to do it. The case has been dismissed, maybe is a better way to say it, right? So it could be as clean as that. The case is dismissed. There you go. Let's go a little bit more. Or it could, or and, or it could be that uh, there's no one here to condemn you. Uh, by the way, if there's anyone who could condemn her, it is him. And if she's indeed guilty, why wouldn't he? <laughs> so here's where I think we get to see a little bit more of the optimism that I don't want to just lean to the purity of what's right and wrong for Jesus, but um, the fact that we say that she remained, I think it's just as powerful that he remains. The situation is over. The test is complete. He could walk away, uh, especially if she's an adulterous woman. Of what consequence is she to him anymore? But in the way that we know Jesus, he actually finishes the conversation. He remains with her. He, he converses with her. And then says to her, I don't condemn you either because there could be nothing to condemn. And go and sin no more. Go change your life. Right? Turn to John 3. We're, we're over time. So John 3, 17. Uh, 16 and 17. John 3, 16 and 17. I guess what I want you to know, and I, that I sort of, not that he would stone her, but but Jesus could have cast judgment on her. He certainly could have. But but who do we know Jesus to be? He seeks out sinners. So in this case, she gets to go. Somebody write, read John three sixteen seventeen. Who's got it? Do, do, do. Come on, they have to go. It's time to leave. All right, D, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Yeah. Listen, I want sinners to repent. It's part of what we do. <laughs> right? Um, I want, on Sunday mornings, I want you to come with the worst of your sins. I don't want you to stay home because you really screwed up during the week. I want you to come to church, especially when you really screwed up in the week, so that we can lay those sins before God with repentant hearts and hear the words of Christ, right? Never in the absolution does the pastor say, well, I announce to you that this week you went a little too far. <laughs> you don't get it. Not this week. No, we, we always flood repentance with forgiveness, right? And so here's where our optimism comes into play in that, we see Jesus here. His, the nature of Jesus was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. As Christians today, when we look in the mirror, that should give us optimism, that God doesn't want to condemn me. He wants me to be saved. And, you know, I love to do this to you. The same is true for the sinners you know. So, we, so our first nature as Christians doesn't always have to be. Sometimes it's appropriate to slam that law down, but sometimes the nature of a Christian can be, I've got something for you to be optimistic about. You don't have to be stoned, <laughs> right? You don't have to live it. You don't have to walk with this, live with this well anymore by yourself. There, there's something of hope for you. Last point. The optimistic point to me is that we are given a second chance. And every day that we get up in the morning, we have a clean slate. And we're given another chance. Yeah. That's right. That's right. To walk that path of righteousness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you and praise you for the witness of the woman at uh, this stoning and for the, com the compassion and wisdom of Jesus, our Savior and King. We pray, Lord, that uh, first, where we are sinning, where we are sinful, uh, that you would have mercy upon us. Help, help us to acknowledge that wrong so that we may be uh, once again brought into the mercies of your love and grace upon us. We pray, Lord, for a world that often seems to be contrary to you. And we pray that through the power of your love and your grace and your wisdom and your truth, the world will be changed forevermore and brought to repentant hearts uh, and to the love that you have for them. Uh, Lord, we pray today for those in our prayer guide and those in need of care and, and, and love and healing, that you bless them as well. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and his people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.